Welcome to the Energy Exchange Podcast, hosted by Internex, a podcast where we talk about a cleaner, smarter energy system of the future. Hello, I'm Ron Chimpra, Vice President of Grid Modernization with Internex, and I'll be your host for this episode of the Energy Exchange. Today, we will be discussing the topic of cybersecurity and the risks that our control systems exposed by connecting remote assets. Cybersecurity is at front of mind for many utility operators, IT specialists, and has risen to the level of importance for many utilities that actually now have a Chief Information Security Officer, a CISO. While there is a growing need to have access to more field assets in the grid, the result is that we now expose more potential threat vectors. Secure devices, secure communication links, and secure systems are many of the typical tools that utilities employ to thwart the potential for intrusion. There's also a significant difference between IT security and OT security. Recently, the Government Accountability Office, GAO, issued this critical infrastructure report to congressional requesters identifying actions needed to address significant cyber risks facing the electric grid. In this report, the GAO found that there are many threat actors that the grid is becoming more vulnerable, particularly with systems involving industrial control systems that support grid operations, and that the federal assessments indicate such attacks could cause widespread power outages in the U.S. The report points out there are three primary ways of attack that can come through remote access to industrial control systems, through the internet and corporate business networks, and or remote access to ICS devices through communications networks. The GAO in the report recommends, one, adopting changes to the NIST cybersecurity framework, and two, evaluating the potential risk of a coordinated attack on geographically distributed targets and making changes to the threshold for mandatory compliance with a full set of cybersecurity standards. Both the DOE and FERC agree with the GAO's recommendations. With me today is Andrew Gittner, author of two books, SCADA Security, What's Broken and How to Fix It, also known as the Red Book, and Secure Operations Technology, the Black Book, and is the host of the Industrial Security Podcast Series. Andrew serves as Waterfall Security's Vice President of Industrial Security. In this role, Mr. Gittner leads a team of subject matter experts who contribute to industrial security research standards and regulations and who work with end users to make specific security, cybersecurity architecture recommendations for their networks. He spent 25 years leading and managing the development of commercial products for computer networking, industrial control systems, and industrial cybersecurity for leading vendors, including Hewlett Packard, Agilent Technologies, and Industry Industrial Defender. So, Andrew, welcome and thank you for joining me today. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about Waterfall Security and your expertise in dealing with cybersecurity in the utility control room environment? Hello, Ron. I'm I'm happy to join you. Uh, Thank you for for having me, and thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in here. Um, Sure, uh, a few words about me. Uh, I spent a decade or so developing industrial control system products, uh, mostly at Hewlett Packard. Um, Those products, I'm you know have a a a bit of pride in me. They still automate big iron projects. They still automate, to my knowledge, the world's single largest oil pipeline, the world's single largest natural gas pipeline. It was a was a big iron. piece of technology. 
Um, I then moved on, spent about half a decade developing ITOT middleware, connecting uh, industrial control systems to mostly to SAP, the uh, the big German enterprise resource planning system. This, of course, connected a lot of IT networks and OT networks together, uh, thereby contributing to the cybersecurity problems that now plague many industries. I got religion. I wound up chief technology officer at Industrial Defender, working to secure industrial sites. And now I'm at Waterfall Security Solutions as their, their VP Industrial Security. Uh, a few words about Waterfall. At Waterfall, we think of ourselves as the OT security company. We produce a suite of technologies and products that are deployed at the world's most secure industrial sites. Um, you know, think everything from nuclear generators to cardboard box manufacturing sites. What distinguishes these sites um, from more run-of-the-mill sites uh, is not sort of the nature of the site. It is the tolerance for risk, especially it's the tolerance at the site for physical consequences of cyber compromise. Our customers have generally decided that the physical consequences of compromise are unacceptable. Uh, you know, they generally decided that in a connected world, it's too easy for the bad guys to reach through networks and bring about those unacceptable consequences. And, you know, those consequences, they start with simple downtime of a of a you know an expensive process a, a billion dollar plant um, and they go up from there you know there's downtime and then there's damage to costly equipment think you know 100 million dollar steam turbines and catalytic cracking towers there's casualties at the site there's public safety hazards there's the potential for environmental disasters these are all unacceptable uh, and our customers recognize you know recognize that that fundamentally nothing is secure Security is not a yes or no thing. Uh, you know, the question, are we secure, is meaningless. It has no answer. The question, how secure are we, has an answer. And much more importantly, the question, how secure should we be, is one that we see our customers focus on. Generally, we see that, you know, the, the, the people at secure sites, they set the bar, you know, put your hand up, you know, this high. They design their security systems so that, to the greatest extent practical, no remote attack poses any threat to physical operations. They set the bar for cybersecurity at a point so high that if an attacker wants to get into the control system, the only way possible is that the attacker needs physical apps access. You know, if someone wants to attack one of these sites, they have to put their own liberty at risk by gaining physical access to the site. So this is what, what Waterfall is about. We're about helping our customers set the bar for security that high. Very interesting, Andrew. So the GAO report points out some very interesting aspects, uh, specifically in recommendations that are needed to improve our electrical control systems environment. I'm curious about your reaction to this report. Well, generally speaking, I, I welcome the report and, and I agree. Uh, I've maintained for some time that uh, we need stronger protections at many sites in our power grid, not all of them. Some of them are really thoroughly protected, others are not. On average, uh, I think we need uh, uh, a stronger security posture. Um, specifically, there's two kinds of recommendations the report makes. The, as you said, the first had to do with the NIST framework. So let, let's deal with that one first. Um, the audit office says that NERC-SIP does not address enough of the, the NIST framework. You know, the the, the, the measures in, in, in NERC-SIP don't cover the framework. Now, 
in the GAO report, NERC responded to, I guess, a draft version of the report. The, the report documents the NERC response. The NERC response says that while there may be a gap, but they disagree with the audit office as to the uh, the extent of the gap. Uh, to me, this is entirely predictable. What we have to do is think about what is the NIST framework. It's a framework. It's a checklist. It's a you know it's a list of things to think about. It's not a standard with recommendations. If you if you read the framework, it says things like you should protect your networks. That's one of the bullets. Okay. How doesn't say, you know, you should have you know access controls for your hosts. Okay, so it's a checklist of things to think about. It's a you know it's a list of kinds types of security measures that we need to consider in a, in, a, in a security program. It doesn't say how strong each measure should be. It does not even say which measures might be applicable to which kind of industrial site. All of that is left to the judgment of the people, the practitioners who apply the framework. So it's not surprising that, you know, to me at least, that NERC's experts disagreed with the audits, the, 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 the experts at, the, at the, the GAO office. Applying the framework takes a lot of judgment. Now, the other two recommendations, sort of the high-level recommendations, had to do with multiple simultaneous targets of a cyber attack. Um, especially when none of these targets individually would come into scope for NERC-SIP uh, medium impact or high impact rules. It's the medium impact and high impact rules that are sort of the, the robust part of NERC-SIP. The low impact rules, I think there's only seven rules. There's not much you have to do to low impact assets. So in my understanding, the GAO comments were saying, look, if you have low impact or less targets, um, well, you don't have to protect them much, according to NERC SIP. But um, they said SIP looks at these targets individually. SIP does not add up a bunch of targets and say, uh, if I have you know 17 power plants all below the 1500 megawatt threshold, and I add them up and compromise them all simultaneously, I might be compromising a big chunk of the grid's capacity. So lumping targets together is something that the GAO has flagged as uh, you know. NERCSIP needing to address. And, and I agree completely with this finding. I think the, the problem here, to me, is most pronounced, is most sort of most easily seen in the generation space. So uh, the GAO report talks about how NERC is encouraging something called disaggregation. This means splitting up control systems. Sometimes it means even buying extra hardware like air compressors so that we can break up the control systems, the air compressor control systems, everything, so that instead of having one control system for a two gigawatt power plant, we now have four control systems, each for a 500 megawatt generating unit. Um, so a firewall on each of these generating units, and now according to NERC-SIP, all these units are low impact assets because they no longer have the, the impact on the grid. If one of those generating units is, is compromised, it's 500 megawatts, not 1500 megawatts, which is generally the medium impact threshold. Here's the problem. A firewall might serve to prevent propagation of, let's say, common malware from one generating unit to another. 
It's not going to do much to address a targeted remote attack, one of these sophisticated attacks. If the bad guys can punch through the firewall on one generating unit, well, they can use the same technique, can't they, to punch through the firewall on each of the other four units and take the entire site down. So to me, this is the, you know, the argument that I've made for some time. Um, don't get me wrong, though. Disaggregation does have value if we do it right. What we see is generating utilities deploying a unidirectional gateway. I'll, I'll say more about them later on. Deploying a unidirectional gateway at the ITOT interface. This makes remote attacks on the power plant impossible. And then they disaggregate internally with firewalls so that if something does get in, let's say common malware on a USB key, that stuff cannot propagate between the units inside the unidirectional layer of protection. So to me, this is the right architecture. In in my best, you know, in my best estimation, maybe, you know, maybe 50, maybe 70, maybe 80 gigawatts of the north of the generating capacity in the North American grid already uses this architecture. What bothers me is that NERC has been almost completely silent on it. Nowhere in the standard, nowhere in the best practice guidance does NERC, does NERC uh, talk about what they think is the right way to do segmentation and disaggregation. Very interesting, Andrew. You know, you, you raise a very interesting point. And so let's just dive into a little, little bit more detail. Uh, in your SCADA security book, you point out that modern attacks today routinely breach networks, uh, SCADA networks, that are defended to IT standards. And in order to help ensure levels of protection at these control networks, you're suggesting unidirectional gateways are deployed. So uh, the concept, uh, I, I believe some people refer to it as a data diode. So could you expand a little bit more on, on the concept of the unidirectional gateway? Sure thing. Um, let's talk about a data diode for a moment. A data diode is hardware that sends information only one way. Think two boxes connected by a short fiber optic cable. Um, the you know the the first box, the the electronics, the circuit board has a laser, uh, a fiber optic transmitter in it, but no receiver, no photocell. The other one has a receiver, but no laser. And so we can send information from one box to the other, but it's not physically possible to send any light back down the fiber in the other direction. The sending box is completely blind. The sending box cannot even tell if the receiving box has power. So all cyber attacks are information. Uh, if no information can pass back in the, the opposite direction of the diode, um, no attacks can pass back. This, you know, this constitutes not, you know, hardware protection or cyber protection. Really, this is physical protection for an, an OT network. Um, it's physical protection. It, you know, it doesn't matter how sophisticated our enemies are. It doesn't matter how capable their malware is. It doesn't matter how many zero days they exploit. It doesn't matter how many passwords and, and two-factor dongles they steal if no information gets back. No attacks get back. Now, this diode-type hardware is used extensively in military networks. Uh, you know, think classified networks. Uh, send information into a classified network, leak no government secrets back out. The problem is that if you take one of these military-style data diodes, hardwares, between two networks, um, you know, two conventional networks, nothing useful happens. Industrial protocols can't get through. You know, you replace a firewall with a data diode and everything breaks. Uh, this is why Waterfall uses the term unidirectional gateway. NIST, in fact, 
uses the same term in their 882 standard on industrial control system cybersecurity. This is revision two of the standard. NIST defines a unidirectional gateway as the one-way hardware, you know, roughly the same kind of hardware as the data diode. The gateway is one-way hardware and software that replicates servers and emulates devices. Now, the one-way hardware, you know, we just we just dealt with. What's this software? The software makes copies of servers. So imagine a database, a process historian, or, you know, even for the IT folks in the audience, even an Oracle database sitting in the operations network. The database is the focus. This is a very common design pattern. It's a focus of ITOT integration. All the data we want to share with the IT network is in the database. Um, the unidirectional gateway software that runs on the OT network queries the database and says, please give me all of the latest stuff, all the latest changes. It sends a snapshot of all that stuff through the weird one-way hardware using proprietary protocols. And then the software on the outside network, on the IT network, that software inserts the data into an identical database. If it's you know OSI soft pi on the inside, it's pi on the outside. If it's Oracle on the inside, it's Oracle on the outside. We insert the data into a replica and the software keeps the two databases synchronized, usually to about one or 200 milliseconds. It produces a faithful, timely replica of the source database. IT users query and use the replica. They get the same answer from the replica as the live system would have given, but nothing ever gets back through the hardware into the OT system. And it's not just databases. You know, we can do this for all sorts of OPC and DNP3 and ICCP and other, other weirdness. Um, so, you know, in short, you replace a firewall with a, with a diode, nothing useful happens. You replace it with a gateway, according to the NIST definition, uh, and maybe add, you know, a replica server or two if you don't already have them. And monitoring of operations becomes very easy and completely safe. It does not matter if the enemy steals all of our passwords and all of our dongles for every account on every computer on the planet. It's not physically possible to get that attack information into a unidirectionally protected site. So that's that's the 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 main concept. So just to, to expand a little bit on that, you know, is that the concept uh, taking to the full extent almost like a digital twin? You know, a full replication digitally of of an image and working on that and keeping that protected and secure? That's a good question. Now, when I heard the term digital twin, I thought we were talking emulating a process in the cloud so that we could draw conclusions about deviations between the emulated process and the physical process. Um, you know, we use the term replica. Um, I don't know. You'd, you'd, you'd have to ask someone who, who you know, who does digital twins more than I do, if if uh, if that's a fair application of the term. It's the first I've heard of it, so uh, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm a little surprised. Yeah, it just popped into mind. But anyway, you you mentioned protection in depth is really essential for securing our control systems, given the diversity and ge geographic spread of many of these assets. And to your point earlier of uh, taking some of these systems from a very large to a smaller system for that sense of diversity. How can we ensure that we can execute the sensing and ability to execute commands to achieve the risks associated with potential cyber attacks? Well, um, this is the 
the topic of my second book, Secure Operations Technology. This is the black book. Um, in the book, I document what secure sites do. Um, you know, specifically, I document some 20 uh, types of industrial networks and uh, their their communications patterns, the kinds of communications they have to exchange with with IT networks and other external networks. A lot of these designs are counterintuitive. People might be familiar with the idea of the unidirectional gateway, as I just explained it. They, you know, frequently people who are who are who who get exposed to the idea, they look at their networks and they cannot figure out how to apply that idea to their particular needs. They need this kind of information moving from here to there, and they need something else coming back in, and they need remote support, and it, they just can't figure it out. So I documented these 20 designs, um, well, in part because I thought they needed to be documented. Literally, these designs had never, well, more than, no more than one or two or three of them had ever been written down. Most of these designs were literally walking around in the heads of less than a dozen people in the world. And all, almost all those people were waterfall employees. I thought someone has to write this down. The world needs this knowledge, how to apply unidirectional solutions to lots of different networking needs. So in the book, what I have is designs for all sorts of networks. Uh, so, you know, examples, you need a way to send antivirus updates in to a unidirectionally protected network, there's a design for that. You need a way to protect substations across a wide area network, um, there's a design for that. You need a design to protect protective relays inside those substations. You need a way to let turbine vendors maintain turbines remotely through a unidirectional network. It's it's all there. Um, you know, I can go into detail if you like, but the general rule, I mean, there's always exceptions, but the general rule is simple. If we can put one layer of physical protection, unidirectional protection, one layer into a defense in depth architecture, such architectures are usually network, firewall, network, firewall, you know, many layers deep. If we can take one of those layers and throw a unidirectional gateway in there, we have reliably defeated the attack path from the internet or the IT network into the industrial network. We've, you know, we've, we've provided a layer, one layer in the architecture of physical protection. And, and by, you know, physical protection, I don't just mean one way out and nothing in. There's a whole family of products and technologies in this space. There's remote screen view. There's mechanisms for disciplined scheduled updates. There's temporary emergency remote control hardware. Uh, you know, there's, there's permanent remote operations and, and so on. But if we can get one layer of unidirectional protection into a defense in depth set of layered networks, we defeat remote attacks. If we can, and then, you know, in the lower layers, we can segment to our heart's content with, with firewalls and other, you know, software-based technologies. And if I may add another trend we've seen in only the last 18 months, a, a use case that's becoming very important, people are finally starting to deploy OT intrusion detection system sensors. These are, you know, sensors that, that watch the network traffic and draw conclusions and raise alerts to a, a central SOC so that the central operations center has visibility into industrial and operating, you know, physical networks. The problem with all these sensors is that, is that they, they need adjustment. They, you know, you need to tweak them to reduce false positives, false alarms. You need to update signatures if they use signatures. You need to update the software. You need to update threat intel from, from cloud-based sources. 
if we put these OT sensors on OT networks, now we have to let all of the SOC analysts remote into all of our OT networks. Ops is going to push back. We have 150 plants. You want how many people from where to log into all of our plants and do what? And what are they going to do it to? You know, you're, you're going to get pushback. So instead, what we need to do is put those sensors on the IT network so the SOC analysts can log into them. No problem through the IT network. But then we have another problem. The sensors connected to the IT network so you can log into it. But the mirror port is coming off the ops network. And, you know, a lot of these mirror ports say they're unidirectional, but they lie. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> even if they are unidirectional, it's software only. You know, trick the software and then the unidirectional becomes bidirectional. So ops is going to push back now for a different reason. They don't want the, their OT sensors connected to the OT network and connected to the IT network. So... What we see people doing is using the unidirectional gateway hardware to access the mirror ports on the operation switches, push the, 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 the network traffic through to the OT sensor. So the OT sensor can see all of that traffic, but the OT sensor is deployed, is connected to the IT network where the SOC analysts can get to it. And the OT networks are physically protected from any attack that might, you know, any attacker that might be tempted to pivot through the OT intrusion detection sensor. You know, with the gateways in place, ops resistance vanishes. Uh, we have no trouble anymore expanding the scope of our enterprise security monitoring system to include our most important operations networks because we've introduced that one layer, one is all it takes of hardware physical protection. So Andrew, you, you really dove into the you know, philosophical and uh, practical differences between IT and OT. Yet everywhere that uh, you read in the industry, there's the convergence of IT and OT. Uh, how do we achieve a harmonious marriage between those two environments, uh, especially around the cybersecurity protection measures? Well, um, the... To me, the, the the you know the way the way to to get harmony is for basically each group with their own sort of of interests to recognize the needs and the the expertise of the other groups. Um, so, for example, um, engineering teams in operations are frequently concerned with physical consequences. Uh, they're often completely consumed with preventing certain kinds of physical consequences. The protection engineers prevent damage to equipment. The safety engineers prevent casualties at the site and, and public safety risks. Um, security updates, though, you know, the, 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 the IT folks are, are concerned with business consequences of compromise. They're, they're concerned with huge systems of software that they have to keep as, as clean as they can. You know, they look at the ops guys and say, what do you mean you don't do security updates? What do you mean uh, I can't put antivirus everywhere? And, and the ops guys look at them and say, what do you mean you want to put an antivirus system on my safety controller? That's never going to happen. And, you know, they go at it. The moment we get the IT folks to look over and say, look, uh, you know, when I visit your site, I don't want to die. So, no, I'm not going to push antivirus onto your safety controller. We recognize that you have to manage 
equipment with physical consequences, with intense physical consequences, as engineering resources, not as information resources. And you know, conversely, the IT guys need to go need need to realize. Sorry, the the ops guys, the engineers need to realize that you know, just because they cannot apply security updates, or they you know they're just because they're using a different discipline that's focused on physical consequence, that doesn't mean the vulnerabilities, the cyber vulnerabilities, go away. We still need to fix that problem. And when we get the two teams, you know each recognizing the other's needs and expertise. This is where we start to see real cooperation. And, you know, frankly, it comes down to, you know, something fairly simple in in my experience at the sites we serve. The two teams sit down and they figure out where to draw the line. We're going to put the layer of hardware protection here. Everything above it is going to be managed as an IT resource according to IT disciplines. Everything below the line is going to be managed as an engineering resource according to engineering disciplines. And it's you know the 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 SecoT is not just unidirectional protection. That's the heart of the online protections. And that's you know that was sort of the 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 focus of the GAO report in in my understanding. Um, but I spend chapters in the black book talking about offline protections that I observe at these thoroughly secured sites as well. Offline protections meaning, uh, you know, removable media, laptops, new computers, supply chain risks entering, people walking back and forth between one network and the other, uh, you know, people looking at their cell phones and scratching their heads and, you know, touching things and, and making things happen. All of these are, are offline mechanisms. And so, um, Yes, draw the line, say this is how we manage the two networks and manage the ops network as, as an engineering resource according to the entire SecoT discipline, not just the, the unidirectional stuff I've been talking about, but the whole thing. If, if we get a comprehensive inventory of information flows into a control critical network, well, all cyber attacks are information, all of them. A, compre a comprehensive inventory of information flows is also a comprehensive inventory of attack vectors. And so uh, if we can get that inventory and we can address all of those attack vectors, either online or offline or you know both, um, we have controlled all of the possible attacks that can target the system whose physical consequences of compromise are unacceptable, whose you know, whose integrity we, we must, you know, very much uh, need to manage. So, Andrew, you pointed out that uh, very frequently utilities need to take an inventory of information flow to help identify attack vectors. So how difficult, how challenging, challenging is that for a lot of utilities? Is it something that should be straightforward? Uh, should it be done, obviously, at the design level or after the design is implemented? How should a utility begin the process of collecting this inventory and defining attack vectors? Uh, it tends to be uh, fairly straightforward. What we typically do when we engage with one of these sites is we'll we'll sit down with them for a few hours or a half a day, um, and we'll just go by memory. Or you know they might have some documentation. You know they can they can bring up on their laptops and and throw up on a, a whiteboard. Uh, we'll, you know, we'll start drawing diagrams and we'll define the control critical network. This is typically a network of several industrial control systems aggregated together. And it's the perimeter of the control 
critical network that, that we're going to protect uh, unidirectionally. Um, from memory, generally, we carry out an inventory of what's inside the network and uh, what are the data flows through the network perimeter. And we you know, put together this comprehensive all somewhat comprehensive it's you know it's it's a it's a, a first pass at a comprehensive list of information flows and therefore attack vectors you know we put together a, a technical proposal for uh designing you know unidirectional protections given the type of network you know nowadays you know couldn't do it three years ago because it was all in people's heads nowadays you can flip to chapter six and say okay we got one of these we got one of those we got one of these let's put things up on the on the whiteboard and design a solution um and of course this is generally followed up by a more detailed engagement once we've sketched a solution once we have convinced ourselves that this ought to be doable now we can start making investments in terms of uh, you know, starting a purchasing process or uh, starting uh, an engineering analysis process in support of a purchasing process. One, you know, early step in that engineering analysis process is verify the inventory. Do a real inventory. Uh, you know, count the the wires. Make sure that we've accounted for all of the connections. Make sure we accounted for all of the uh, the assets inside these networks. I mean, it's hard to protect things you don't know exist. It's certainly hard to control communications you don't know exist. So you know these inventories, if they haven't been done recently, almost always turn up surprises. And you know we may have to have a a, a second session with the whiteboard to. You know, say, oh, look, the network is more complicated than we thought. We have one of these in there as well and one of those. So let's do this, but aggregate it this way and, you know, come up with a solution that will work given our, you know, our deeper knowledge. But it's a, it's a bit of an iterative process, but usually no more than, you know, two, maybe on the outside, three iterations. To me, the big challenge is, is not this process. It's, it's actually quite straightforward. To me, the, the big challenge is just awareness. I mean, this is why... I write things down. This is why I talk to people like you on podcasts. I mean, you know, let me tell you a story. Uh, uh, you know, I won't, I won't name names. Waterfall was part of a research project recently, a bunch of vendors donating equipment to a project, a bunch of researchers hooking it all together and learning things. Um, we had a real industrial user participating, uh, giving the vendors access to their live control system. And, you know, watching very closely waving the finger don't you dare mess with my control system but yeah you you can get some access to the control system for the purpose of this research we all need you know thing you know stronger security to to become easier to do so you know we support this we of course donated a bunch of unidirectional gateways to the cause at the end of the project the the, the user looked at the unidirectional gateways we deployed looked at the architecture and said that was really painless that just makes too much sense. And they bought two of them. They wanted that degree of protection permanently for their industrial site. And that's all it took, seeing the thing in action, and they bought them. So awareness is one problem. We've got to make people aware that this solution exists. To me, the, the, the second big problem is threat awareness. Too many people are still thinking that we're protecting information. We're not. We're, what we're doing is preventing physical consequences of compromise. We're not protecting information. We're protecting physical systems from information. You know, business networks 
need to deal with with risks of lawsuits because we let someone steal personally identifiable information. OT networks need to prevent physical consequences. Now, the second law of cybersecurity, all software can be hacked. I produced software for 25 years. You know, all software has defects. I didn't try to put defects into my software, but, you know, in for 25 years, in spite of my best efforts and those of all my colleagues, every piece of software I ever produced had bugs. Some of those bugs are security vulnerabilities. So in, in practice, all software can be hacked. Um, it's physical protection we need. It's physical consequences we're trying to prevent. You know, what happens when an IT network is compromised? We identify, we isolate the, uh, you know, the compromised equipment. First identify it, then isolate it, erase that equipment, restore from backup and repeat. The problem is we can't restore worker casualties or damaged turbines from backups. We need physical protection for physical operations. Software protection is not sufficient. This is a calculus that uh, a lot of owners and operators have not gone through. So, you know, to me, this is the, the, the big thing for, for the average industrial site in the power grid or, you know, the average railway operator, the average pipeline operator, whatever. This is the big thing that we need to communicate to, to, to business decision makers. And they need, to, they need to internalize in terms of, of the kinds of threats they really are and are not willing to accept. You know, Andrew, in your book, you point out that security is a pure cost that trying to place a return on investment metric may not be the best way of measuring efficacy of the process. However, as you start talking about the physical consequences, uh, is there a better approach to identify qualitative versus quantitative assessment for cyber protection? Absolutely. I cover this in chapters 10 through 12. Um, you know, quantitative risk assessment very roughly i mean there's lots of variations but very roughly is the likelihood of compromise in let's say the next 12 months times the cost of compromise and then you get what's called an annualized you know that what we expect cyber compromise to cost us in the next 12 months um the problem is that uh, you know it's fairly straightforward to calculate costs of consequences we you know we have engineers who do that um Likelihood can be calculated for high frequency, low impact events. You know, say um, common malware getting into our systems. We have statistics for this. We can calculate the likelihood. You know, how many how many viruses are likely to get loose on the corporate network? Well, there was, you know, in the next twelve months. Well, last twelve months it was seventy three. So let's guess seventy five going forward. Um, but what about low frequency, high impact attacks? How many times was the entire North American grid taken down by a cyber attack in the last decade? Zero. It's never happened. So what's the likelihood of that kind of consequence next year? Well, it's not zero. First law of SCADA security, nothing is secure. Security is a continuum, not a binary state. We can always be more secure. We can always be less secure. It doesn't matter how secure we are. The probability of compromise is never zero. So what is the probability of compromise? Shall we make up? Shall we invent a probability? Imagine you're the CISO presenting this risk analysis, a quantitative risk analysis to your board, and they ask you, where did that probability come from? We don't want to be asking the board to make decisions on made-up probabilities. No, they, they see through that. So 
what we see people doing instead at thoroughly protected sites, especially for the, the, the low frequency, high impact events, they use a capabilities based risk model, not quantitative, not qualitative either. I mean, you know, you go to the board and say, I need $6 million because we're at a 29.2 on our risk scale and we need to be at 33.5. <laughs> I'm sorry. You know, I do this for a living and even I don't understand that, you know, mere mortals forget it. So, what we see is that when utilities look forward, they ask the question, what are the simplest attacks with serious consequences that we cannot defeat reliably? And by reliably, they generally mean 100% of the time. If simple attacks with serious consequences are within the means of our adversaries, we see those utilities deploying stronger security. You know, as I said, most of our customers draw the line you know, at a height such that remote attacks are defeated reliably. Uh, you know, in, in strong offline protections, um, you know, removable media, laptops, the offline protections along with strong online protections, you know, at least one layer of unidirectional online protections yields a security posture where the only attacks above the line, the only credible attacks above the line, uh, you know, I call it the cyber design basis threat line in my books. Design basis threats a concept from, from physical attacks. The only attacks, cyber attacks over the line are physical attacks, attacks where someone physically breaks into a site or attacks where an insider deliberately cooperates with a distant attacker to carry out, you know, to, to carry attack information into uh, a targeted site. A security bar that high means that simultaneous attacks on multiple sites are very difficult. You know, people are people. If you've got conspiracies going on with lots of people involved that are going to physically carry attacks into a bunch of sites simultaneously, these conspiracies are, are very difficult to pull off silently. And, and all of our governments have massive people intelligence operations going on right now to identify that very, you know, that exact kind of people-centric attack. So we don't see our customers asking the question, when will I see a return on this investment? They ask the question, what are our enemies capable of? And they decide how much of that capability they have to be able to defeat reliably in order to serve citizens, in order to serve, to serve customers. A very, very interesting approach, and I think you know it's very enlightening to look at that from a risk profile rather than a return profile. So, Andrew, I know there's much, much more we could talk about, but given the remaining time in this episode, do you have some closing thoughts? Absolutely. Um, a, a bit of a plug, if I may. Uh, Waterfall sponsors the Industrial Security Podcast. You mentioned that. I'm a co-host. I say waterfall sponsors because it's not about waterfall. The podcast is all about industrial security. It's all about our guests. Um, unlike the last 30 minutes, the industrial security podcast is not about my opinions or even waterfall's opinions. I'm not allowed to express my opinions. It's all about the guest. If I, if I disagree with a guest, I cannot do it on the podcast. I've got to find another guest to present, uh, to, to present, a, a you know, the other, the other point of view. So, you know, this is partly why I found this um, this podcast recording so very different because I get to talk for thirty minutes about what I think, <laughs> not just about you know what the guest is talking about. So thank you for that. Um, if you're interested in sort of uh, a steady diet of 
experts talking about industrial security, talking about their perspective on industrial security, um, go to the, the Waterfall website, waterfall-security.com slash podcasts, and you'll find that. Um, as a parting thought, though, uh, here's what I'm thinking. The, the bell curve is shifting. Uh, which bell curve? If we chart um, how strong, you know, how, how much security people have deployed at industrial sites, and we chart how many sites are, you know, at which level of security, you're going to get a bell curve of that, that says, you know, lots of sites are at roughly this level. And, you know, there's fewer on the right that are much more secure. There's fewer on the left that are much less secure. You know, any random distribution is going to smell kind of bell curveish is, is what I'm thinking. Um, the right end of the curve is the world's strongest, most cyber secure industrial sites. This is who Waterfall serves. This is who deploys our technology. This is who I document in the book on, on secure operations. Here's the thing. The threat environment is getting steadily more hostile. Our, you know, we, we see attacks that are increasingly sophisticated. We, we see attacker techniques that are more determined and more capable. A lot of this is because attack tools are becoming more powerful. Um, you know, the, the, the attack technology is like any other piece of software. It just gets more features and more power as time goes by. And, and you know, some of it is because the bad guys are making steady progress on profiting more from their attacks. All of this means that all of us are going to be increasing steadily, increasing the strength of our security posture. The entire bell curve of security strength is shifting to the right. The tools and the techniques that are currently used by the world's most secure sites are moving into the mainstream. This means the approach I've been talking about for the last 30 minutes really lies in all of our futures. So I encourage our listeners to become familiar with these, what they may think of as advanced security techniques, become familiar with them and start using them wherever it makes sense to start. Get some experience because I, you know, I, I maintain this is all of our future. And to this end, you know, to, to the end of enabling people to understand and start applying these advanced techniques, um, Waterfall is making my latest book, Secure Operations Technology, the Black Book, not the, the 2016 Red Book, making the Black Book available uh, free of charge for now. Uh, I, I know there's still copies left in our inventory. If you would like a free copy, please go to the Waterfall website waterfall-security.com slash sec-ot, all lowercase, sec-ot. Uh, you can request a, a book there, uh, you know, give us your, your shipping address and we can, we can uh, physically send you a copy out. And again, the book is about secure operations. It's not about waterfall. I think the book mentions waterfall once in a footnote on page 66. You know, the book is about uh, security. It's about what we see the world's most secure industrial sites doing today. They ask different questions. And so, of course, uh, of course they get different answers. Andrew, thank you very much uh, for not only the information you provided, but the offer to our listeners for the free book. So uh, part of what I'd like to just summarize here is that You've pointed out that a comprehensive inventory of both offline and online information flows into a control room is a critical tool necessary to identify the inventory of attack vectors. Uh, you also mentioned to the extent practical to deploy physical protections against each one of those information flows and not just the software. 
And you also mentioned the unidirectional network diagrams uh, and designs can be counterintuitive. And that in your black book, you've identified 20 so of them that uh, everyone should take in, uh, into deep consideration. And finally, I think threat actors continue to become more capable. In uh, no small part because of their attack tools, like every software product, they continue to become more and more aware and more and more powerful. So, uh, I and as you say, the bell curve of security posture strength is shifting to the right in the direction where the kinds of sites and practices necessary for SecoT today have to migrate. So, if Andrew's right, at least one of these, some of these techniques will likely be in our future. So. Again, Andrew, thank you very much. And to our listeners, for more information on this topic, please be sure to visit internext.com backslash the energy exchange and download our security brief. The brief is a two-page document with concise and actionable intelligence on this topic. So if you have an idea for an upcoming episode, or if you want to be a guest, please send an email to podcasts at internext.com. And please subscribe to our podcast. It can be found on all major podcast platforms. So until next time, this is Ron Chebra. Thanks for listening. Discover more about Internex by visiting www.internex.com and join us for upcoming issues of the Energy Exchange Podcast. Internex, a Chessie company, is a leading provider of research, engineering, and consulting services to the electric power industry worldwide. Founded in 2003, the company is focused on helping our clients understand, adopt, and leverage new and emerging electric power technologies to advance a cleaner, smarter energy system of the future.